Good morning, and Eugene and crew, thank you for leading us in worship and praise song. It's great to be with everyone. I think I know most people in here, but I don't know everyone. So to those of you I don't know, welcome. My name is Adam Sanchez. I have the privilege of being on the elder team here at Oak Hill Bible Church and serving as the pastor of discipleship and missions. And today I have the honor of bringing the Word of God to bear in our brand lead, new, renovated <laughs> MRH, right? No, that's not for us. There's a play going on here at Masters, and it'd be great to support it too, uh, but this is, not, this is not a new sermon series that we're doing and building out a stage four. Sorry to tell you. Now, last Sunday, Pastor Jeff really helped us understand who Jesus is, and I would have even called the, the sermon, Who is Jesus? He walked us through the critical I am statement at, at the end of John chapter 8, and it was rich in theology and Christology. We have to know who Jesus is according to the scriptures. Today, we're going to ask a follow-up question to that. So last week was, who is Jesus? This week, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Now, before you answer that too quickly, let me explain why we need to answer that question. At the end of the sermon, last week, Pastor Jeff pointed out three subtle ways that we may take offense at Jesus. He pointed out that we could have unmet expectations, focusing on worldly things, we could have indifference, giving lip service without proper obedience, and we could even shrink back and lack trust in God. So we might say the right things about Jesus' identity, but do we functionally live and honor Christ according to his true identity? So here's the struggle that I see. We assent to these theological truths, things learned from scriptures, sermons about Jesus Christ. We might even be quick to quote these things and tell others about them. But I think there's often a struggle for the professing believer to live out their state of belief. It's one thing to say Jesus is king or to put it on an album. It's another to live it. And while we can be thankful that Christ is proclaimed by any person, the believer should be about honoring Jesus as the Christ and the believer should strive to live out the theological truths associated with Jesus' identity. So let me go back to that question. Who is Jesus to you? It's great if you go through that Rolodex, that repository, biblical truth in your mind. He's the Savior. He's the Son of God. He's my friend. He's my substitution. He's my Lord. And maybe you have others too. But this morning, we're going to look at some examples in Scripture where his followers, his disciples, didn't quite honor him or respond to him according to his identity. Stories where people saw Jesus as a lifesaver, a genie or an impersonal force. And in going through the scriptures this morning, hopefully we'll learn a bit more about ourselves in the process. So let's begin. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. Now in this passage, you're going to see the unlimited power of Jesus on display, but you'll also see the hearts of his disciples, which may or may not be that different from our own in certain moments. So Mark chapter 4, Verse 35, I love hearing pages rustling, people still carrying Bibles around. Well done, well done. I mean, it's okay to have a digital Bible too, no shame. That's awesome, it's just awesome to hear the physical pages rustle. Okay, Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And on that day, when evening came, he, that is Jesus, said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. 
And they got him up and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Teacher, do you not care? Let's pause here and consider the plight of his disciples in that moment. Putting it in context, Jesus had just started teaching in parables. And all the synoptic gospels record these teachings and this event. Mark chapter 4, which we're in. Matthew chapter 13. Luke chapter 8. Many commentators note these as the first great group of parables. Jesus has been near the shore of Galilee. Some think he was near Capernaum. And he actually got in a boat. If Jeff was here, he'd give you a map. You know that. I'm not Jeff. I'm sorry. He actually got into a boat to teach. And it was to acoustically address a large crowd at the beach. Some of you have been to Ibex or to Israel, and you've seen where they believe the site to be. And there's very good reason to believe it, because speaking from out in the water, you can hear it all along the shore. It's pretty cool. But there's something interesting to note about Jesus' teaching in parables. You know, Jesus taught the crowds in parables, but he only explained the parables to his disciples. So we could even say the ultimate value of the parables was and is for those who will be saved. Another interesting thing to note Even though Matthew records the same parables that Mark and Luke did in chapter 13 of his gospel, he actually mentions this calming of the storm that we're focusing on much earlier in his gospel account. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, he mentions the Sea of Galilee storm after highlighting the faith of the leper and the faith of the centurion. And rather than putting that storm chronologically, I think it's likely that Matthew was contrasting the disciples' lack of faith in Jesus with those other great examples of trust in Jesus. And this lack of faith by the disciples in the storm, it's striking. I want you to note something. Note the familiarity of the disciples with Jesus. The disciples stayed with Jesus, and Jesus stayed with the disciples. Think about a camping trip. If you've ever been on one, I don't know, hopefully. They slept near one another. They awoke together. They ate breakfast together, prepared to journey and walk together. All the conversation, right? Surely they discuss life, they discuss the scriptures, they discuss Jesus' teaching. They had time with Jesus. They saw Jesus perform miracle after miracle, teach with divine clarity, and even showcase perfect love and care. Other people believed Jesus with far less witness, just like the leper and the centurion. But the disciples, they had close access to Jesus. So close, in fact, that Jesus himself, he contrasted his disciples, his followers, with the crowd. And that's where we even get this point about the parables. Jesus taught his disciples the meanings of the parables. He didn't teach the crowds the meanings of his parables. The disciples noticed that. They asked him why. Mark chapter 4, verse 10, a little earlier, verses 10 through 12, and Matthew 13, Jesus says of the crowds, "...in seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand." Jesus is clear with his disciples. He is ultimately there to teach them, his followers, not the crowds. Though his words are beneficial, some may come to saving faith. But I'm pointing this out. Think of the nearness of Jesus to his disciples. Now let's think about what's transpiring at the end of Mark chapter 4. Jesus has been teaching all day. First, he was actually in a home. It could be Peter's home. We're not going to hold to that, but it could be. When he was in the home, he left it to go teach outside. Why? Because his mother and his brothers wanted to take him back to Nazareth because they thought he was crazy. They thought he was losing it. In leaving the home, the crowds continued to follow him, and that's where Jesus heads to the shore because the house wasn't right on on the shore. There at the shore, he teaches, and he's pushed out into a boat to accommodate the large crowd that is gathering around him, and he teaches many parables throughout the day. 
Now, at the end of the day, exhausted from teaching, he tells his disciples across to another side of the shore, and they obey, and they attempt to cross the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus was tired. He was exhausted. How do we know? How do we know that Jesus was tired? You can look at your text, Mark chapter 4, verse 38. He was asleep in the stern. Not only was he asleep, he was in deep sleep. In Matthew's account, he describes the waves as quaking and crashing into the boat. As this was happening, Jesus was asleep. Now, another time we can get into that geography of the Sea of Galilee, how quickly those storms can arise. But for now, consider the great fear of these disciples while Jesus is asleep. Now, they've been listening to him teach all day, right? They listened to the parable of the sower. They listened to the parable about being a lamp. They listened about the tares, about treasure hidden, of the pearl of great price, of the net of the householder, and even of faith the size of a mustard seed. They heard all of these that very day. They probably heard more than that too. But now they're in a boat and the waves are threatening to overcome them. And where is Jesus? He's asleep. Now you could imagine only great weariness could make sleeping on the boards of a small boat with a tiny little cushion comfortable in the midst of a great storm. He is exhausted. And in this, we get a glimpse of the humanity of Jesus. He's exhausted in a human body. Now what's cool is in a moment, we're going to see that human weakness contrasted with divine power. But the main point of this passage in Mark 4 is really to the disciples. This storm is for them. Their response reveals their hearts. Now, in waking Jesus and asking him if he cares that they're about to die, they reveal their mistake. They think Jesus isn't aware. They think that he really isn't present, even though he's right there in the boat. They accuse Jesus of not knowing what's happening and worse, of not caring. Now, how similar can it be for us when we're in the storms of our life, right? We think little of the God who knows every wave that falls upon us, We forget that he not only knows our name, but he knows how fast our heart is beating in any given moment. He knows our innermost thoughts, our emotions, our desires. But great fear can reveal great distrust. What is neat, though, is even in their lack of faith, the disciples know who to turn to. They turn to Jesus. Even in their accusations, they know who to beg for mercy. So they wake Emmanuel, God with us, right? And what does Jesus do with their accusation? Go ahead and look at verse 39. And he, that is Jesus, woke up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Silence, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so cowardly? Do you still have no faith? And they became very afraid. And were saying to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Notice the the first thing Jesus does is not to answer their question. They said, Lord, do you not care that we're perishing? He doesn't answer them. The first thing he does when he wakes is he addresses the wind and the sea. He tells the wind and sea to be at peace and to be still. And guess what they do? They obey. Imagine if we did the same, huh? Could you imagine? Now, some of you have seen real storms. Some of you have seen real storms. Rain, pounding, waves crashing, lightning flashing storms. We don't get a lot of those out here in California, but we get some maybe. Could you imagine such a storm stopping immediately with a word? That's what happened here in the text. The disciples, maybe maybe they were really afraid of dying moments earlier, but now, now they had a different fear. 
they had a different fear after Jesus calmed the storm because now they stood in awe of the one who calmed the wind and seas with a word. Who is this? Who is this? Think of the eerie silence that must have followed that storm, that sudden calm after Jesus spoke to creation. You think Jesus had their attention now? Certainly their breath was taken, their eyes wide, their mouths agape, right? Not only did Jesus save their lives, but he demonstrated his power over all things. All things are created by him. He is before all things and all things are held together in him. Paul would later teach this right out of Colossians chapter 1. All things created through him and all things created for him. Jesus is more than their lifesaver. The disciples said, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And as we talked, as we learned last week, we were reminded, this is the great I am of Moses' day. He's the creator, he's divine, and now he is incarnate, and he knows our plight. <clears throat> Though this situation is mostly about trust and faith, and the disciples' lack of both of those things, it's also about power and might, and the identity of Jesus. Who was Jesus to the disciples in that moment before they woke him up? After all the teaching, after calling them to follow him, after explaining the parables to them, who was Jesus to the disciples in their moment of great fear in that storm? And how often do we have similar responses in our storms? When the waves press in from port and from starboard, creating a valley of death from which we can only despair, how have we responded? And how will we respond? I hope we learn from this example and not shrink back from Jesus in our moments of difficulty, but ultimately we remember that he knows us. He knows and he's aware. He knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows every wave that threatens to destroy us and he's with us. He is our shepherd. We read that out of Psalm 23. His rod and his staff bring comfort and he is not asleep. Now you're getting a full meal today. That was just number one. We have two more. So if you're asleep, give yourself a little pat on the face. Sorry, that was my mic. My bad. I know, I just got the ooh right here from, from Alex. But it woke you up, though, so it, it worked, okay? All right, we got two more, two more here to help us think about who Jesus is to us. Now, during the Underground episode this past week, I read from Luke chapter 10 about a circumstance where we meet Mary and Martha, right, the two sisters. Now, there are a number of Marys in the New Testament, and the two sisters, they have a few other special occurrences in Scripture. Now, of note, this Martha that we're meeting here in Luke chapter 10 is the same Martha that serves the Passover dinner to Jesus and his disciples right before the triumphal entry. And this is the same Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with a very expensive, basically a year's worth of salary for uh, perfume and with her hair. Now, though Martha will need to be corrected by Jesus in this, in this case, as the disciples did as well in the previous one, she is dearly loved. And her later example of faith and trust will challenge and should challenge us all. So with a little better understanding of how these two women fit into the narrative, let's go ahead and read the account, Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. You can follow along as I read. Now, as they were traveling along, he, that is Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who was also seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the preparations alone? Then tell her to help me. Okay, now, if you didn't get what was happening there, I'm going to explain it. So don't worry. But coming off the story where we saw the weariness and exhaustion of Jesus, it's not a far stretch to imagine that Martha witnessed that physical toll 
on Jesus. And she was likely very hospitable and mindful of the needs of others and a good host. That's just evident by the way she approaches the situation. I think we could even say that Martha thought she was honoring the Lord with her emphasis on hospitality. But notice, though, that Mary had a learner's posture. What did she do? She sat at the Lord's feet to listen. And this caused conflict between Mary and Martha and even between Martha and Jesus. Martha's focus on hospitality was not intrinsically sinful or wrong. Being a good host is commendable, but Martha was short-sighted. Verse 40 says Martha was distracted by all her serving. The word for distracted in the Greek, it's perispao. It has the connotation of being drawn away, being pulled away or dragged away. So her serving was pulling her away. But that connotation also gives a sense that Martha didn't want to be pulled away. She was being pulled away against her will. She wanted to hear Jesus, even sit at his feet and learn. She could probably make out a few of his words as she hustled and bustled about preparing this and cleaning that. And with each passing fragment of his teaching, she probably grew more and more frustrated by, by missing what Jesus had to say. Now remember, Martha was not a busy, imperceptive person. She actually will be one of the few to make the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Christ, and will herself be the recipient of one of Jesus' I am statements. But here she is, devoted to serving, and now smoldering, upset that Mary wasn't helping, and upset that Jesus allowed her to serve by herself. Now, friends, Thanksgiving's coming up, right? Have, has anyone in here ever cooked the whole meal themselves or helped to prepare the meal? Has it been stressful? I don't know about you. Maybe you have the perfectly calm, you know, meal prep kind of dynamic. It's hard to make a lot of food for a lot of people. I think it's quite stressful. It can be. Now, it should be fun. We should enjoy it. But it can be hard. We're trying to time things. You got one, maybe two ovens at best. You're trying to get everything to come out on time. It's a lot of work, huh, to prepare a large meal for a large number of people. So anyone with that kind of experience can sympathize with Martha. But what about service in other ways? Have you ever been upset with another believer who isn't serving in the way that you're passionate? Whether it be hospitality, as is the case with Martha, or in other areas, have you ever been critical of other believers in lacking zeal to serve in things? I'll just name some here at the church that we got at Oak Hill. Set up, tear down, audiovisual ministry, music ministry, youth ministry, children's ministry, child care, ministry teams, evangelism. If so, if you've ever been critical or upset, have you ever challenged yourself about whether your critical spirit was really righteous? Now, to be sure, if, if somebody is slothful in all things, that is repugnant to the Lord. But if a person serves in other ways, but just not your way, are they not honoring the Lord? Now, I think we can all receive the challenge here. We can become distracted by what we think we ought to do for the Lord and miss being with the Lord. Take a look at Martha's statement to Jesus in verse 40. There's something interesting in that statement. Luke uses the same word for care here, do you not care, mellow, that Mark used when the disciples in the boat accused Jesus of not caring. They said the same thing. The disciples and Martha both said, Lord, do you not care? And both of those came with accusations against the Lord. Now for Martha, her priorities were skewed. She was so sure that what she was doing was exactly what the Lord wanted and needed, even if he didn't know it. Remember, she's not speaking to some great teacher, to some important rabbi or prominent figure. She is speaking 
to the creator of the universe, the one who holds all things together by his word. She is speaking to the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and she accuses him of not caring and then tells him what to do because clearly, though he's God incarnate, he is somehow oblivious to this situation. Now you can see this playing out just like a sitcom, can't you? Now before you think I'm giving Martha a bad shake here, don't miss that disobedience and that disrespect. You can sympathize with the difficult situation Martha is in, but we cannot, should not, condone sinful reactions to the Lord and to others, no matter the circumstance. Martha does not know better than the Lord, should not accuse him of not caring, and definitely should not be giving him orders. So what's going on? Well, Martha thinks much of herself. In her tunnel vision, she thought that what she was doing was most important, like we sometimes do. Martha thought her sister should be as committed as she was to serving the Lord her way. Martha's thinking that if Mary were a good Christian and even a good woman, that she would be doing what Martha's doing. But this posture of Martha, it was self-imposed. And though she smoldered that her sister wasn't helping, it was this attitude that smothered her and made her serve as drudgery. In retrospect, surely Martha would see this situation with new eyes. But in that moment, she was unable to see her mistake. She was loving all the service of the Lord and not the Lord who's above all the service. But in love, Jesus responded to Martha's misguided expectations. You can look at verse 41 and 42. Now the Lord answered. He said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part for which it will not be taken away from her. Now, first thing you should notice, notice the tenderness of Jesus using her first name twice. That's not a harsh rebuke. This is a loving and necessary one. She has no right to order the king of the universe around, but Jesus knows there's much turmoil in her heart and addresses her tenderly. Second, Jesus acknowledges that turmoil in her heart. She's anxious. Another, you know, synonym for that, distracted, worried, She's also bothered, she's troubled, she's upset, she's disappointed. Now he points out that he knows what's going on in her heart. Jesus says it. He declares to her, these are the things going on in you. Does he not care? By no means. He cares and he knows. Third, Jesus points out Martha's heir and he provides wisdom for all Christ's followers. Now in her perceived necessities, Martha missed the one thing that is necessary. So what was that one thing? What was necessary? Look back up in verse 39. Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. This is the necessary thing that Jesus speaks of in verse 42. This is the living out of choosing the good portion. Now, I don't want to get too distracted by this good portion, but it's a neat concept that Jesus brings in. Many of the men were reading through Psalm 119. I challenge you at the underground to read Psalm 119, verse 57. It says, the Lord is my portion. And it harkens back to Psalm chapter 16, verse 5, where it says, the Lord is my chosen portion. And in context, Psalm 16, David speaks of the heartache of idolatry and pursuing any other God. Even service can be a false God when we're not worshiping the God we're trying to serve. So we come back to Mary 
And Jesus said, she chose the good portion and it won't be taken away from her. And the verb tense that Jesus uses is all the rebuke that's needed for Martha. He uses a future tense of afareo, which means to take away. Now, it meant that Jesus was not only saying this, Mary will not miss this opportunity to sit at my feet, but he was also saying her good portion won't be taken away in eternity either. Here, Jesus was connecting the actions in this life with eternal realities. Mary's dedication to Jesus in this moment would not be taken from her, nor would her eternal life in Christ be taken from her. Now, Martha wasn't intentionally trying to remove those things from Mary, but in her self-focused short-sightedness, she missed what the moment was all about. The moment in her home was about sitting with Jesus. It was about learning from him, being with him. She was overcomplicating everything. And Jesus was nothing more than an object for her religious devotion. She was not treating him as her Lord, but Mary was. And this needed to be pointed out for Martha's sake. So friends, we can make that same mistake. We have that same and similar tendency as Martha to give everything we have to a particular area of interest. Now, this could be things like evangelism, protection of the unborn, marriage and family, care for the poor, particular ministries in the church, any of those things and more. We can allow even good interests like hospitality to so dominate our hearts that we leave little time and attention to God's word, spending time with him, being with him. Without the word, we have tunnel vision and we can become judgmental and critical. Just look at Martha. Amid the thousands of tasks that we undertake in our lives, we have to make one task central and most important and most regular, sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning. And we do that from his word. Now from that moment in her home, in just a few months from that occasion, it would be clear that Martha had also chosen the good portion. But ask yourself this morning, have you chosen the good portion? Have you been indifferent to Jesus? Have you been improperly obedient, focusing more on your service than the one that you're serving? Have you overcomplicated your faith with the trappings of service and missed the priority of being with Jesus in his word? Those are piercing questions, but let's go to our final example to help us think about who Jesus is to us. Now we're going to be with Martha and Mary again and their brother Lazarus this time. And of course, Christ will be here. Now for this one, I'm not going to read the whole account. It's a longer story. Pastor Jeff is going to cover this. Whenever we get to chapter 11, you can tease him about that because it might be in two years. But I don't want to step on his toes. So we're just going to kind of briefly go through this one. You can still turn there though, John chapter 11, to follow along with the story. Now I'm sure many of you are familiar with the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But now with a bit more context about these sisters, this should be a good challenge to close our time in God's word together. So Lazarus here, he's the brother of Martha and Mary. These are the ones we've just discussed. They're from Bethany. This town, again, if Jeff was here, he'd have a map for you. But this town is just to the east of Jerusalem. It's actually a stone's throw away. It's less than two miles away from Jerusalem. Now, extra credit, this little town, it's where the disciples are told to procure that donkey for the triumphal entry. So you can use that one on the quiz show later in your life. Now, in this passage, the dear brother of Martha and Mary, Lazarus, has become ill. And apparently he's so ill, the sisters are worried about their brother surviving this illness. So they put out a message to Jesus who was not too far away. Now, actually, according to John chapter 10, verse 40, 
Jesus was at the place where John had been baptizing. Now, if you agree with Pastor Jeff from a sermon about a year ago in John chapter 1, verse 19 through 28, and I do agree with him as well, then Jesus is east of Bethany. He's east of the Jordan River. He's in the region of Bashan. This is about 20 miles, 20 miles from Bethany. So back to the story. Jesus, Lazarus is severely ill. Martha and Mary send word to Jesus because they're not sure their brother's going to make it. And they tell him, the one you love is sick. Now, when they said to Jesus, the one whom you love, the type of love there in the Greek, it's phileo, which this love is brotherly affection. It is kindred type love, like brothers and sisters and friends. But when Jesus heard the news of Lazarus, the response of Jesus is probably not what we or the sisters would have expected. See, Jesus said that the illness was for the glory of God. Now, I don't know about you, but in these times today, when's the last time you considered illness as an opportunity for God's glory to be displayed? Seems like these days a lot of people think they can avoid getting sick altogether. But Jesus said it was for God's glory, so that the Son of God may be glorified through this situation. So when Jesus heard the message that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer where he was. He didn't rush to see his sick friend. Now why? Didn't Jesus love Martha, Mary, and Lazarus? On verse 5, John chapter 11, John tells us Jesus loved the siblings, but he used a different word for love than when the sisters sent word to Jesus. See, the sisters used phileo when speaking of Jesus' love for Lazarus. But here, John used agapao, which is a different type of love. It's actually a higher order of love than the love that the sisters mentioned. See, they thought Jesus loved Lazarus as a friend. They didn't quite comprehend the kind of love that Jesus had for the siblings. See, that agapao love, it's deeper. It's more cherished. It's immense loving concern. It's not just friendship or fondness. It is love that is proved in action. Love that cares. And it's because of this love that Jesus delays. Now, he, pur he purposed that his dear friends would walk through this valley, this sorrow and difficulty, because he loved them. Now, ultimately, this wasn't about the sisters getting their brother healed. This was about Jesus' resurrection power on display and encouraging trust in him as a holy, wood, holy one of God. And in John chapter 11, verses 14 to 15, they say this, Jesus said to them, that's his disciples before he had left, Lazarus is dead. He said to them plainly, and I'm glad for your sakes that I, am, that I was not there, so that you may believe. But now let us go to him. Now friends, that can be difficult to hear. <clears throat> this man just died, and Jesus, the scripture says, he says it plainly. That means frankly, that means just as a matter of fact. He says he was glad that he wasn't there for their sake. Now, we know that Jesus had something better in store for them if we know this story. But how often have we been confused in a moment of trial or hardship and wondered, what is Jesus doing? We often have expectations of what Jesus should and shouldn't do. He should save us from that storm. He should tell other people to serve the way we want them to serve. He shouldn't delay when we need him. But here, Jesus states that he is glad that he was not there. And in fact, the word that he uses for glad, it's often rendered rejoice in other places. So why would Jesus rejoice at not being present for the death of Lazarus, the one that he loved? 
I think it's because Jesus had something far better for this family and for all who would witness his incredible power. The delay of Jesus wasn't unloving. It wasn't uncaring. And it didn't evidence some cold response as was typical of the false gods that people worshiped in that day. No, the delay of Jesus was tremendously loving. It was caring because Jesus sought to strengthen the faith of his disciples and his followers. I told you I wouldn't go too deep on this one. Jeff's going to walk through this passage in our series, but let's just highlight the main aspects of this story. Jesus does arrive, and Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. And note, the delay of Jesus wasn't about making sure that Lazarus died. It was about making sure the miracle to be performed was all the more magnificent. Think about this. This wasn't going to be some like CPR type defibrillator style rescue that just happens when somebody's right there on their deathbed. No, this would be, you remember what Martha says, Lord, he stinketh. Are you sure you want to go in there? It's going to be that kind of death coming to life power on display to make the miracle more miraculous. The sisters didn't understand though. See, to them, Jesus was still the incredible teacher. He had the words of life but they didn't know him yet as the resurrection and the life. Martha's yearning expectation was clear when Jesus arrived. She heard that Jesus arrived. She went to meet him on the road before he even came into the town, but Mary remained in the house. And the first thing that Martha said to Jesus when she sees him is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now notice though, at least this time, she did not accuse him of not caring. Martha knows better now. But she also knows that Jesus could have helped. But she doesn't understand Jesus' power. Not yet, anyways. She trusts in Jesus having power, but she thinks too little of his power. That he only had power to heal Lazarus, not to raise him from the dead. But she also recognizes that God listens to Jesus. She says that. And that his prayers could bring some good to this difficult time. And so her hope for her brother is in the final resurrection of the saints, and that was a common understanding of the Jews in her day. But then Jesus gives her one of his I am statements. It denotes him as the resurrection and the life that all who believe in him will yet live. And after making that incredible statement directly to her, Jesus asks Martha if she believes this. And Martha, who a few months earlier had been telling Jesus what to do, and complaining about her sister not serving, replied with only the second affirmation of Jesus' true identity. And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. And after she makes only the second claim to Jesus' identity, she goes to get her sister Mary, tells her that the teacher is calling for her. Mary gets up quickly. She goes to meet Jesus on the road where Martha had met him. And when Mary comes to Jesus... Her dependence on the Lord is seen in her physical response. She gets to him and she falls at, her, at his feet. She echoes her sister in saying that if Jesus had been there, her brother wouldn't have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who were with her weeping, he was greatly moved. Now of note, here, the Jews that were present and they were weeping, they were from Jerusalem. This likely signified the importance of this family. The Jews' presence also meant that Jesus had a larger audience to display his glory. But going back, Jesus, with that term, greatly moved, that usually denotes severe distress, even anguish. And it happens twice to Jesus here. First, when he sees Mary and the Jews weeping, he's greatly disturbed in his spirit. And then again, when they came to the tomb, greatly 
disturbed. And I just want you to consider one thing before we wrap this up. Why was Jesus deeply moved? Why did he weep? Was it a show? He knew he would raise Lazarus. So why be deeply moved? Now, friends, here's my take. Yes, Jesus is all-powerful. More than we can imagine, more than Martha and Mary could imagine. But being all-powerful doesn't mean that he doesn't care. Jesus sees the pain and the anguish and the brokenness of humanity in that moment. He's a witness to the devastation of illness and of loss. Jesus sees the consequences of sinful humanity and a fallen world. He sees these two sisters who love him, one of whom boldly professes him to be the Christ, the other who will anoint his feet with a year's salary worth of perfume in her own hair. And these women showcase the grief, the hardship of life in a broken world that needs a savior. And Jesus is that savior. He knows our griefs. He knows our sorrows and he's come down to earth to bear our sins. And Jesus is deeply moved in lament, in anguish over a sin-soaked world that has to experience such devastation and loss. Sin brings death and death brings sorrow. At least in part, I think that's why Jesus is deeply moved. But the story doesn't end with mourning. No, this story concludes with Jesus speaking life into Lazarus, raising him from the dead again simply by his word. Lazarus, come out. He showcases his resurrection power to the dismay of everyone present. See, when Mary and Martha sent for Jesus, he was just a powerful healer who could help their brother. But when Jesus arrived in God's perfect timing, they came to know Jesus as the resurrection and the life. And their trust in him was strengthened through his mighty and compassionate display. Now, how often have we been expectant of Jesus doing one thing only to witness him doing something else? Have we ever thought too little of his power or his purposes? I, again, I hope we take this in a, as an example of encouragement to trust in the true Jesus of the Bible, to not expect things that he hasn't promised and to hope rightly in him and not in what he can do for us. Now to wrap up today, I'm gonna get a little fierce because some of you know me to be that way. What sins should we be cautious of when considering who Jesus is to us? We got to talk about sin, right? Otherwise, what are you doing here? Too often, we're afraid to talk about sin, huh? We want to make everything happy. It's not happy. We need to repent. But the disciples in the boat, self-oriented disposition and blaming of God. They didn't plead for saving. They didn't plead for help. They accused and blamed Jesus of not caring. In their moment of fear, they revealed unbelief and lack of trust. They didn't trust Jesus to be the creator and sustainer of all things. And still, even in that, Jesus displayed his identity and he gave them yet another example of why they should place their trust in him. He didn't turn them away. For Martha, it was her indifference of seeing Jesus as some impersonal force. He was not her Lord. Yet she would have said that he was. Martha was so focused on her agenda that she missed God's agenda for her. And nonetheless, Jesus rebuked her in love. He clarified for her what her agenda should be. Sit, learn at the feet of Jesus. 
Now for Martha and Mary at the death of their brother Jesus and or at the death of their brother Lazarus and then Jesus' late arrival, it was their unmet expectations. Jesus was somehow supposed to accomplish their will. Didn't matter what he was doing. They didn't think about greater purposes from the Father or the fact that that miracle set in motion everything that was about to happen during Passion Week. They didn't consider that Jesus was not just their Savior, but the Savior, the entire world. And nonetheless, Jesus wept with them, raised Lazarus with much gladness and celebration, and Jesus showed his compassion and his power. Jesus made it clear that he came to earth to do his Father's will, and in all of these circumstances, with real people walking through real difficulties, the Father worked his holy will through Jesus. I don't want anyone in here to think that Jesus was simply at the right place at the right time. You have to remind yourself of the sovereignty of God that places Jesus at the perfect place at the perfect time every time. The presence of Jesus in all of these situations served the will of the Father. And we ought to take notice of the identity of Jesus displayed in each of these. So the question, who is Jesus to you today? Now, before you arrived here this morning, were you hoping Jesus to rescue you from some great difficulty? Were you secretly blaming him for not caring about you? Were you thinking Jesus to be aloof, asleep, or uncaring? Before you got here today, were you struggling with indifference to Jesus, lacking true zeal to sit at his feet, and paying him lip service as king of all? Were you planning of ways to serve him that didn't involve actual submission? Were you upset that others weren't serving him as you are? Or maybe before you came here today, you were hoping against hope that Jesus came to deal with all the things that you care about most. Were your eyes too tilted close to this earth and not in the heights of his glory in the heavens? Were you upset that Jesus didn't do what you wanted him to do? And no matter how you came to arrive this morning, I would challenge you to see how the struggles that we witnessed here in God's word through these three scenarios are immensely similar to our struggles today. And I would challenge you to see the issue of belief and of trust as we walk through these three examples of unbelief, of failure, of rebuke, and of restoration. I would urge you to remind yourself of Jesus always working to build our faith, whether sleeping or teaching or showing up late the actions of Jesus always serve to help, his, to help his disciples believe in him more and more. So let's be sure to put our hope in the right Jesus, the one that we read about in the pages of Scripture, not the Jesus we've created in our own minds. But let's ask God to help us by his Spirit to renew our minds about the identity of Christ. And actually, we're just going to take a moment to do that right now. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And before I pray, if you need to, if you need to repent, you do that with the Lord. You can repent for any unbelief. You can ask for forgiveness. Even if you don't need to repent, if you're saying, hey, you know what? I came here this morning and I wasn't having those thoughts. Amen to that. Then ask yourself this question. Have you understood Jesus for who he is? Who he declares himself to be? Or have you understood Jesus for who you want him to be? Ask yourself that question. Take a moment now and I'll close us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word. 
But more than all of that, we thank you for sending your perfect son, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us as our Savior at the perfect time. We thank you for entering into our plight, our difficulties, and perfectly understanding all of our distresses, all of our storms, and caring for us as we walk through the valleys of life. For those of us who recognize we need forgiveness, myself needing forgiveness, forgive us of the ways that we make Jesus out to be something that he is not. Forgive us for holding on to ideas about Jesus that are not from your word, but from our own man-made thinking. Forgive us of the ways that we place our expectations, our priorities, our agendas before yours. And we ask for your help. Please help us to know Jesus as Messiah, as the Christ, to boldly proclaim him as Martha did, as Peter did, to worship him properly in spirit and in truth. Help us to think less of ourselves and our own situations and help us to lift our eyes to the heavens as we consider the work that you are accomplishing and bringing many to glory. Your son Jesus, he is the resurrection and the life, but we need your help to believe this more and more and to understand how that impacts the way that we live. Thank you for caring enough to show up at the perfect time, even late by our standards. Thank you for walking us through the valley, bringing us comfort by your rod and staff. And thank you for always working to grow the faith of those that you love, those that you've called, those that are part of your family. Because of all these things, our hearts are not heavy this morning with lament, but we are rejoicing because you have redeemed those who are your own. So to you is all glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. And our songs that we sing in response are not out of obligation. They're out of gratitude, out of thankfulness. Thank you for saving. Thank you for redeeming. Thank you for forgiving. Thank you for being patient with us, even when we accuse and blame. We love you, Father, and we pray in the name of the Son. Amen.